Hey everyone, welcome to Expiration Date, Season 2, Episode 2. I'm David. I'm Michelle. I want to start off by doing something that I want to consistently make part of the podcast, because I, when I, I listen to a ton of podcasts and audiobooks and stuff like that. But one thing that always frustrates me is I have no idea when they're recording. Mm. So I want us to do just a brief little, here's where we're at. Okay. Just so you know, I mean, even though we're talking about stuff that happened a century ago, I want to just kind of say where we are. Today is April 20th, 2022. Currently, Russia has launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Uh, midterm elections are coming up this year. Democrats are currently in power, but they are very worried about November. State governments that are overwhelmingly Republican are passing legislation that is targeting LGBTQ members and CRT speech in schools that has resulted in direct action against students, teachers, and school structures like school boards, book access, things like that. I'm saying all this because in this episode, we're going to start looking at the intelligence wing of the military industrial complex. And if you don't understand the history of military intelligence, I don't think you can understand the current geopolitical landscape, which includes American culture. This is our second episode concerning the military-industrial complex. If you have not listened to the first episode, I think that you should. I struggled a lot, um, as I told you in episode one, of where to start this season. And we kind of started with just where our military is Um, In our last episode, how large it is compared to other militaries, kind of the history of the American people being pushed into warfare. Um, We talked about ground invasions, probably the three most famous in our history, at least currently, Vietnam, Afghanistan, and Iraq. Today, we're going to start a multi-episode series on the history of the CIA. I debated whether going over the history of American warfare would be more beneficial, but I really think... Understanding military intelligence is the key to understanding military action. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I'm hoping you'll explain to why why it's the military intelligence. But yeah, I mm-hmm. think I think we can figure that out. If you tried to make our military industrial complex into a body, I think troops and weapons would probably just be the legs, the head, the neck, the opposable thumbs. That's all military intelligence. I would is the way that I would describe it. Okay. Because it does direct the action, particularly of the president, and is responsible for international opinion and the opinions of the American public and how to sway the American public. Differently than we talked about with the FBI, what the CIA does both internationally and domestically is a wholly different animal. When other countries come into contact with the CIA organizations, they tend to get nicknames like the octopus, or the room, or they use Latin, the Latin-based word for ubiquitous to describe these organizations. People describe them as everywhere and involved in everything, and I don't think that they're exaggerating. When I say CIA, what I mean is anybody that's paid by the, it's not just the CIA itself, because the CIA has Splinter groups and organizations that they fund and proxies proxies and yeah, and yeah black sites and all I mean all this stuff that is technically part of the CIA, but maybe even people who work at the CIA don't also know about. Hmm. When these organizations or groups go to other countries, they tend to get nicknames like that. I think that's apt. I okay. think it's 
I think it makes sense. I was going to start out with John Dulles. Have you ever heard of him? Does that name sound familiar to you? Mm, no. Okay. Have you heard of Dulles International yes. Airport? Okay. In DC, um, right? Uh, yes, I think. Or, yeah. 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 It's in DC. It has to be. That was the only place that makes sense. That's actually named after his brother, John Foster. John Dulles was the original director and the longest serving director of the CIA. Does that remind you of anybody? The FBI? Yeah, yeah. And remember. Hoover? And Hoover. <laughs> yeah. He, did, he didn't serve quite as... He didn't. He wasn't there for forty-seven years, but it it was, it was a long time, especially when you compare him to other directors of the CIA. Was he the first director, or was he just mm-hmm. kind of in there? So the CIA developed from like four different organizations, and he was involved in almost all of them at some point. I started looking into John Dulles, realized that I really needed to start earlier with his grandfather, John Watson Foster. So that's where we're going to start. I realize that when we're talking about family members with similar names, you can kind of get bogged down with details. I'm going to try to help you keep it all separate because it is confusing. We're going to start with John Watson Foster, who was the U.S. Secretary of State for President Harrison from 1892 to 1894. Most of the history that I'm going to tell you about the Dulles brothers in this episode, I'm going to link the source material that I have. It's two books and a three-part podcast that is basically summarizing those two books. Um, So it's pretty limited compared to what we normally have as source material. And I strongly recommend that after you listen to this episode, you go listen to that three-part series, even though there will be some spoilers because we're not going to get through all the material on that today. But the source material on this, I really like. I don't agree with all of their conclusions, but if you do listen to it and want to discuss that, I would love to. The source material we are using to introduce this topic puts the beginning of modern intelligentsia at the feet of this man, John Watson Foster. They recognize him as the first American politician to encourage organized state-run intelligence, an idea that his family would see to its fruition. He is really the first to start gathering and analyzing intelligence within the halls of the White House. He was having intelligence reports brought to his office and analyzed by men that worked for him and reporting to the president. And this is new in the geopolitical world. According to our source material, you could make arguments that intelligence was gathered before. But really what we saw is things like Ben Franklin would go to France and spend time with the French and hear from the French. And then he would go back and report to the government what he was hearing and what he was seeing and how the French were feeling. And before John Foster, John Watson Foster, there was a lot of that type of intelligence gathering, which I'm not saying is an intelligence gathering. It was, but this man definitely changed it. We really saw his first big act Um, with intelligence gathering was to be very instrumental in the annexation of of the sovereign nation of Hawaii. This is where we can really see the modern marriage of American business to the American military. Like the Smedley Butler speech that we gave in the last episode of our last season, this is truly where we can very much see that idea get started. Now, did American business link with the military before? Certainly, but the intelligence gathering is new. Did you say the date for this? Uh, yes. He was the Secretary of State for President Harrison from 1892 to 1894. And I don't, I, I'll need to fact check the date on this. I don't think that Hawaii was truly annexed until the like 1940s. No, well, 80s? sorry. We, we overtook them in 18, I think, 98. Okay. We overthrew their royal family 
and kind of set it up for white settlers to rule that area. I don't think we made them officially a state until the 40s or 50s. But America, as you'll see um, when we talk about this stuff, has a long history of annexing territories, quote unquote, and then not really calling them states, such as Puerto Rico, um, kind of what we U.S. Do Virgin Islands. Virgin Islands, Hawaii. Yeah. yeah. And it looks do you like- notice a theme? Yeah. They have beautiful beaches for our rich and famous to hang out at. And they're on outlying areas where you can yeah. put up a military base before they get to exactly. the central end. And it looks like Hawaii was March of uh, 1959. Was when they became a state. Yeah, it was ratified and confirmed by Congress. And I wonder, after, in 1959, what had just happened? I guess, I guess World War II, where Hawaii was probably titular in our involvement in World War II. Our most famous base, probably in existence. Anyway, Pearl Harbor. What? Um, in the Korean War. <laughs> Which is interesting um, because that would be a good forward operating base for Korea to have that. And so they they take Hawaii, as as you say, they overthrow because of, it's got to be because of its military mm-hmm. positioning. We, I think we justified it with saying that Japan was going to do it anyway. Which I'm not saying is wrong. Right. Um, but... We took it by force, by military force. Troops went in. We overthrew their government and put white settler colonials in their place. And I don't use those words to trigger anyone, but that's just what happened. Like those, those were what they called themselves. Mm-hmm. Foster was instrumental in the annexation of Hawaii and ensured an American military presence in the Pacific, Pearl Harbor, and arguably one of our most famous military bases. Leading up to World War I, the intelligence apparatus set up by John Watson Foster began to move agents to other countries and move intelligence with it. His son-in-law, Robert Lansing, would become the Secretary of State during World War I, and because of his influence, military intelligence would explode. And I'm going to tell you about an interesting link between John Watson Foster and Robert Lansing. Have you ever heard of Robert Lansing? I had not before. He was an American lawyer and diplomat, though. He was. He was an American lawyer and diplomat. So was, guess, John Watson Foster was an American lawyer and diplomat. Lansing was John Watson Foster's son-in-law. They are family members. He was married to his daughter. Um, John Watson Foster had two grandsons on whom he doted. John Foster Dulles, born 1888, and Alan Dulles, born 1893. The source material, and for the purposes of this podcast, I will often refer to them as the Dulles brothers. John Watson Foster was their maternal grandmother and uh, both of their, or at least John Foster's namesake. Though close to their immediate family, it was their grandfather that would shape their life, experience, and worldview. From the time that they were small, they had access to the halls of power. Their networking into the American elite was organized from the time that they were children. They hosted presidents, dined with diplomats, and began careers in American business and government that would span decades and really shape the world we live in today. If you want to understand anything about the American military intelligence or geopolitics, you have to start with the Dulles brothers. Side note, we don't really have time to get into the rest of John Watson Foster's story or their uncle Robert Lansing's story, but that history does matter. But for the sake of this podcast, we're going to just breeze past that. Since we are about to get bogged down with names and dates, I'm going to give some spoilers to this story. Both of the brothers become lawyers and government officials 
with many affiliations in the private and the public sector. As the source material, I will also refer to them as Foster and Allen, which is how most historical documents refer to them. By the accounts of their family and friends, Foster, the eldest, was serious, cerebral, hardworking, and utterly devoted to Christianity his entire life. Alan, on the other hand, the younger brother, was the life of the party. He was charming, well-loved, and possessed a deep devotion to the exceptionalism of American democracy. Alan was also prone to outbursts of anger and violence that he kept hidden from the public for the most part. It is important to understand that a lot of the sourcing that we have for this on the two books that I cited, um, much of that comes from his family and his own journals and his wife's journals. So a lot of the stuff where we talk about how they feel or how they are thinking or how they are acting really comes from a fairly reliable source, I think. Because a lot of times when you get to historical figures saying things like, well, they thought this and they thought this, you can get into murky territory about what's true and what's not. Because I think the brothers, though they had similar actions, came from very different motivations. But well, all I'm saying is there is a lot of source material on these men. Their life is well documented from multiple different sources, mainly from the women in their life. Foster, the elder brother, will go on to become the Secretary of State and Allen, the younger brother, will go on to become the first and longest-serving director of the CIA. For me, this little device, a mnemonic device, thinking of Foster Faith Allen Agency is the easiest way to keep it straight in my head, but if that confuses you, just ignore it. Foster graduated from Princeton in 1908 and started working for the law firm Sullivan and Cromwell. Remember that law firm. His brother Allen graduated from Princeton in 1916 and became a diplomat. At the outbreak of World War I, Paul Lansing is the Secretary of State for Woodrow Wilson. Do you remember who he is? He is Foster and Alan's uncle, the son-in-law of their beloved grandfather. They are close to him. Much like their grandfather, he finances their elaborate lifestyle and gives them jobs. At the outbreak of World War I, the military intelligence wing of the United States is exploding. Lansing is very focused, and this is documented in his statements and memos, that he is very focused on minimizing British action and demonizing the Germans. What do you mean by minimizing British action? World War I was bananas. Mm -hmm. And we don't really have time to get into it. There was no good guy. There was no bad guy. The Germans weren't the bad guys yet. They, did, they, they made up for it in World War II by being Nazis. But during World War I, America really could have gone either way. Mm -hmm. We were focused on selling as much stuff to the people at war as we possibly could. That was really our goal in World War I. And we'll talk about why, what happened when we entered the war, but we'll get to that. But World War I was just, I mean, it was kind of absurd. Mm -hmm. um, there's a reason, and our source material actually points this out, that there's not many movies about World War I. And that's because it just, it's not very compelling. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's not a compelling story, no clear cut. These guys were doing the right thing. These guys were doing the wrong thing. And we... Went in, but Lansing, I think because he was more, I think because he could see that the British were probably going to win, he was more focused on being on the winning side. Mm -hmm. And demonizing the Germans would allow us to, or he may have just picked a side arbitrarily. Like I said, we don't have a lot of time to get into Lansing, but minimizing any atrocities committed by the British and demonizing the Germans so that they could manipulate the American public was his goal. Gotcha. He wanted to be able to 
dictate what intelligence he wanted so that he could, they could do action when they needed to. Mm-hmm. But like I said, the history of World War I is, it's, we don't have time to get into it. But it is very interesting if sometime you want to talk about it. Sure. <laughs> so now we're going to get to the sinking of the Lusitania. And much like how we talked about when we entered into the Vietnam War, the Iraq War, and the war in Afghanistan, I want to ask you, David, what do you remember about the sinking of the Lusitania? What were you taught in school? Hmm. Is that the loose lips sink ships, Lusitania? You know what? I I feel like I that was feel, the start I, of something. That was maybe that was World War. When was Loose Lips? Was that World War Two? Loose Lips. Thinking of Lusitania. That had to be the start of Americans and and World War One, right? It was well. It it was a definitely a catalyst. Hmm. During World well, Loose Lips, sink ships of World War Two. But when was the assassination of Archduke Francis Ferdinand. That, that was, was World, World War I, I as yes, well. Yes, that was and World the, War I. And the sinking of the Lusitania. Those kind of things kind of fostered that. Yes. The Lusitania was a British-owned luxury liner that was sunk by a German U-boat in 1915, killing 1,195 civilians that included 128 American civilians. Hmm. Under the direction of the burgeoning intelligence community, at the direction of Lansing, it was ensured that the American people saw this as German aggression and a war crime. The American public was outraged at this act of aggression. Only the Germans promising to stop all U-boat attacks kept the U.S. from entering the war in 1915. That's a pretty big thing by the, by the Germans, yeah, right? Yeah, because at this point, going to war in the European theater was deeply unpopular. Yeah. Especially since our military has was nowhere near what it is now and a lot of our resources had been recently tied up in conflicts in Central and South America. Mm. And so war at this point was very unpopular and the American war machine that kind of propaganda had not solidified itself in our nation like it is now. And so demonizing the Germans was not only profitable to American businesses because we could continue doing our commerce how we wanted to do it, but it also gave us leverage, gave the intelligence community leverage with the American people. As far as the American people knew, the Lusitania was a passenger ship sunk by the Germans um, in an outward act of aggression towards British and American citizens. Saying it that way is incredibly misleading. Then in 1917... When the intelligence leaked that Germany was planning to resume its U-boat attacks, the U.S. entered into the war. So I don't know that you can say the sinking of the Lusitania directly got us into the war, but it was definitely a huge factor and a huge factor in our mythos, the way that we remember that war. And I remember being taught in school that it this. I remember being taught it was an act of aggression by German U-boats and all of those poor people died because of what Germany did. Um, and how terrible it was. And I remember seeing some of the posters that were propaganda towards American and British people about it. Lansing was explicit about this. Calling the Lusitania a passenger ship attacked by an aggressive Germany is incredibly misleading. U.S. weapons manufacturers were using transport ships like the Lusitania to move weapons and supplies to Britain, which they had agreed not to do and violated that agreement, which we had signed, by doing so. 
Under the direction of Lansing, the Germans were demonized and the weapons manufacturers were protected. This is one of the first clear examples we have of military intelligence protecting American business interests and furthering the propensity of the American people to go to war that was not popular before this. For example, the day, the day the Lusitania, the day before the Lusitania was set to leave New York, the German government put the following warning in the New York Times, specifically addressing the passengers of the Lusitania. Notice, travelers intending to embark on the Atlantic voyage are reminded that a state of war exists between Germany and her allies and Great Britain and her allies, that the war zone includes the waters adjacent to the British Isles, that in accordance with the formal notice given by the Imperial German government, vessels flying the flag of Great Britain or any of her allies are liable to destruction in those waters, and travelers sailing in the war zone do so at their own risk. Imperial German Embassy, Washington, D.C., April 22, 1915. So I think it's incredible that we have such a clear-cut example without any of the emotional ties that people still have to Vietnam and Iraq and Afghanistan. And I don't mean that derogatory because I know people are still living that had family members die there. So I think one thing that can be so enlightening about looking at this exact situation is how pervasive the myth that the U.S. intelligence agencies put out that drug us ultimately into World War I how misleading those are and how pervasive they still are. Not only did the German government warn the American people, we are going to blow up this ship. Don't get on it. Then when they blew it up, they covered up the fact that it was a weapons ship. It was a gunship. It was running guns. That's all they were doing. They put passengers on there as human shields. The Germans didn't do that. The Americans and the British did that. They put those civilians at risk, minimized the threats of the German government, and, got, and ultimately drug us into a fruitless and expensive con, like conflict that nobody in the Americas wanted. Uh, none of the American people wanted to join that war until after this happened. And just thinking about how I in the 90s was taught that this was a war crime committed by Germany. And I just think that's incredible. It says in the 1982, the head of the foreign office's American department finally admitted that there was a large amount of ammunition in the wreck, <laughs> some of which is highly dangerous and poses a safety risk to salvage teams. So still now, still now, <laughs> over a hundred years, and it could be a dangerous situation. It's still, we're still currently exploding dolphins. For the sake of this episode and for time, that is all we're going to get into in the story of the Dulles brothers. Right as they're starting out, their uncle's showing them truly how powerful propaganda can be and truly how useful military intelligence can be for the furtherance of the American empire, better business, and funding the war machine. And we have a tendency to think that this misdirection and misleading by by the government and by news organizations is something that's new and recent, but it seems like you're uncovering the fact that this has been going on for over a century mm -hmm. Well, for, and I for think, political and personal gains. Yeah, and I think it's really useful to look at this where we don't have emotional ties to it necessarily, and I think it can just be so helpful. We're going to go over 10 major themes that I want you to watch out for in this story that tend to... All the people say, history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. But 
this this is just repeating itself. Like these are all just major themes that are very important to the story and the legacy of the Dulles brothers and to the way that our military currently operates. The first thing I want you to watch out for, a nice way to say it is legacy. Um, and the more accurate way to say it is nepotism. Mm. This is essential to the history and workings of military intelligence. Many of the men that we will learn about in the upcoming season are related to other men we will learn about in the upcoming season. They are all attend Ivy League schools. They all know each other, and many of the relationships they develop in childhood and college are held in high regard and essential to their careers over decades. This club is made up almost exclusively, and I put the almost exclusively caveat in there just because I haven't looked at every single person, but I cannot think of a single person that I've researched for this season that does not fit this caveat of wealthy, white, Christian, and male. It is explicit. They put this in their memos. They put this in their journals. They put this in their books that they wrote before it became gauche to say something like that. They are explicit in their words and actions that this is how the state should be run by wealthy white Christian businessmen. For example, the founding fathers. This was explicit in their documents. They, they felt that they were the ones who needed to shape global politics. They felt entitled to be there. So as we addressed in the last episode, separating business from the military is a mistake. They intended it to be linked from the beginning. For example, all but like three. I need to fact check this before I say it. I'm going to say it. I'll fact check it for next episode. We'll see. Don't cut this out. For example, all but like three, I think, of the American presidents are cousins. <laughs> like, I mean, they're all related. <laughs> and if you're like, I bet Barack Obama's one of the three that's not. Nope. Mm. Uh, his his maternal grandfather was Bush's cousin. Yeah, they're all related. Another theme we will explore this season is the importance of works of fiction to these men and their actions. I know this sounds a little strange, but hear me out. I am not sure if we will have the opportunity to devote an entire episode to this theme, but I hope we do because it's fascinating. And I include this because I'm going to say things in later episodes that might sound confusing if you don't realize how important fictional stories are to these men, such as how much Tom Clancy has shaped global politics would deeply He's a fiction disturb, writer. Yeah, it would deeply disturb you how much that man, how much power and influence that man has. For example, during the war on terror hearings on torture, um, many of the lawyers arguing for the torture referenced the TV show 24 more than they cited the Constitution of the United States. I know that sounds shocking, but I promise you, the works of fiction that these men that I talk, I'm talking about read when they were young shapes geopolitics mm -hmm. and also the military intelligence has learned that and has started shaping that too. See 24. And the Marvel movies. <laughs> They're funded by the CIA. Isn't that crazy? Are you serious? Yeah. Oh man. They don't hide it. They're very open about it. That's how we get those helicopters. Now, this next theme that I'm going to talk about, you may say is just human nature, but I would really encourage you to open your mind a little bit. I'm going to call it enemy of my enemy is my friend, but that's really not, it's only loosely related to what I'm going to say. The Dulles Brothers, Foster in particular, was instrumental 
in establishing the anti-communist nature of our intelligence. They were explicit about this. Please don't fall into the trap of this thinking that what I am saying is pro-communist. That is what they want you to do. All I'm doing is describing how the American military intelligence machine was directly set up in response to communism, much like we discussed in the FBI, but even more explicit, especially when Foster got involved. Foster, remember, was the older brother that went on to become the U.S. Secretary of State at the same time that his brother was director of the CIA. So if you're thinking nobody could shape American thought that much, these men could, and they did. America was the force for good, and anything that was against America was communism. As we discussed in the FBI episode, the intelligence bureaus were even more explicitly anti-communist and anti-labor. I think it might be useful to define the term communism, but I'm not going to do that right now because what they meant when they said the word was fluid. For example, people who read Marx may define communism as a stateless, classless society. Some may define it as the ideal utopia of a socialist state after it contrasts to fascism as capitalism dies. But for the Dulles brothers, and thereby the opinion of the military intelligence, the definition of communism was fluid. It was mainly the fear or political capital that the word could provide them that that's why they used it. And I, I'm not saying, and a lot of, a lot of the source material we, we don't have time to get into talks about whether the Dulles brothers truly were anti-communist because they truly believed that it was godless and evil, or if it was just bad for American business. Mm. I mean, in, in their defense, it is bad for American business because American businesses could go to these peasant nations, set up puppet governments that would exploit the workers of those communities, and any labor organization was a threat to that. Not necessarily saying that maybe labor organization would be good for the people of that country. That didn't matter. Um, what mattered was it was be bad for American businesses. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Their view of working people and indigenous people was simple. They are cogs in the machine. The natives don't know what they have is almost a direct quote from their grandfather and the need for American businessmen to police the resources of other nations. Real peace is when businesses, U.S. businesses, are good and workers are quiet. Any disruption of the business is labeled communism, like labor movements, and therefore a threat to America. American exceptionalism is extremely important to the Dulles brothers. Um, another theme, uh, convenient suicides and deaths is another major theme to watch for. Convenient with air quotes. Convenient with scare quotes. The pipeline of influential figures from the private sector to the public sector and back again. That's huge in the military intelligence wing. To say these guys wrote the playbook on modern American imperialism is really not giving them enough credit. Training and arming destabilizing forces, overthrowing and assassinating democratically elected leaders, crushing labor movements, ensuring the propagation of business-friendly dealings, just to name a few. Under their influence, what becomes the CIA will do this again and again and again and again. And those are just the ones that we know about. Lastly, as we discussed with the Lusitania, history in this country is what our intelligence agencies say it is. That is taught in our schools, like we learned with Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan in our last episode. This isn't new. 
I was taught this stuff in school. David was taught this Mm -hmm. stuff in school and we're pretty young, relatively (laughs) speaking. It's, I mean, I was taught that stuff in the nineties. I was taught about Vietnam in the two thousands. I learned about Iraq and Afghanistan from the news Mm -hmm. and they are open about the fact now that they lied. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, I, cause people always ask me, where do you get your information? Where do you get your information? And I source it for you. Number one, number two, these are not conspiracy theories. These are established admitted fact by our own government. And so I would encourage you to look at the resource, the sources I name, do your own research, because unless you are reading something that is wildly outdated, the, history will agree with me, even though I would bet you in a lot of schools, the lies are still taught. Because when they taught us about the Lusitania, it was well established that that was not true. And I just think that's very strange. I think it's important that you point that out because at times some of the stuff you say can seem a little bit off the wall, but you point out the fact that one, it's not just conspiracy theory. You've done credible research on all of these and two that it's comes from sources that that we all know and think are telling us something else too mm-hmm. so I, I appreciate that about the work that you do into this well and just just to let you know the complicated nature of the history of these two brothers when i started writing this episode a few days ago i fully intended to get to the bay of pigs and we didn't make it past the begin before we got in world war one yeah. so these guys are it's 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 complicated and it's a lot and I'm going to try to go fast, but I think once you understand the history and dealings of the Dulles brothers, a lot of the other things will fall into place pretty quickly. Um, we are going to have one episode where I tell you all of my crazy theories that maybe are not always supported by source material, but I will tell you when that happens. We'll call those your deductions based on the research that you have. Based, this is what I believe based on my research. Tucker yeah. Carlson works for the CIA. <laughs> that one's pretty documented. <laughs> well, I think it's good that you're establishing this baseline of how things have been in the past so that as we progress through the decades of the military-industrial complex, we can really have a foundation for what it is. So we can develop this kind of culture of understanding so that we can reflect that with everything that we do. And so when we get to those subject lines of, of things that happen in our life that we are aware of and that we participated, that maybe it's not exactly what we saw. Mm-hmm. Well, and just, just, just knowing when to be wary of when they're trying to push you into hating people. Mm-hmm. Like, like we talked about this in season one, there's a very specific reason that they refer to prisoners as criminals or um, any, any, any language they can use to dehumanize mm-hmm. is extremely important. So when they say things like German aggressors, instead of, German soldiers, what Russia is doing to the Ukrainians, they are using the playbook set up by the Dulleses. Like it is incredible how closely they are following it and how short-lived the American public's memory is. And Mm -hmm. I think that is very intentional. For example, one thing when you learn about the history of the Dulles brothers is during World War II, they committed treason with their business dealings with the Nazis, personally enriching themselves and their families by siding with the Nazis up until the point where it was way past too late. I mean, we were in open war with the Nazi regime, with the Third Reich, and they were still, their law firm that they both end up working for, the Cromwell law firm that we talked about earlier, which calling that a law firm is unbelievably 
underwhelming for what they did, but still had many German banker clients and ran a bunch of Nazi money and stolen Jewish gold through Switzerland. Like, and if what the book that I'm reading right now contends that if FDR had not died during the war, that they definitely would have been prosecuted hmm. as treasonous. Um, but we'll get to that in a different episode, but that's kind of a, a gray area too, because even now we have business dealings with Russia and we have business dealings with China. And those are some of our greatest adversaries or competitors, however you want to say it. But yet we understand there's this, this bigger picture of a lot of pieces where we can say, yeah, your military is getting too big. You're doing this. However, we need this to work and da, 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 da. And mm -hmm. so, I mean, it's very intermingled and, and complicated. Well, and I think one thing you can see with, especially with the Russian invasion of Ukraine is a lot of people are like, well, we're going to go in and we're going to arrest Putin and try him for war crimes. No, we're not. No, <laughs> no, we're not. Yeah. We're not. I'm sorry, guys. Putin is our guy that we picked. Mm. Like we handpicked him. Our our intelligence agencies handpicked him to be the leader of Russia. Now, has he done everything we wanted him to do? Probably not. I don't think we really particularly wanted him to invade the Ukraine, but we're certainly going to let our weapons manufacturers get very rich off of it. And they are doing that currently. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people still send me articles about like, well, they're going to arrest Donald Trump. No, they're not. Mm. They're not. Like I, I, and a lot of people are like, well, if these guys commit treason, they would get charged and arrested. No, Donald Trump committed treason on live television. We saw it and he's going to be president again, unless mm. he dies of some health related thing. Cause he's 78 years old. I get a lot of people sending me stuff like that, that they're going to arrest Putin or they're going to try Putin for war crimes or they're going to arrest Donald Trump. Nope. None of those people are going to get held accountable. None, none. The one thing that you can take from the Dulles Brothers is you do not get held accountable for your actions if you make America money or mm. if you make yourself money. Like, it doesn't matter. It, they, and it, Jared Kushner's not going to get prosecuted for anything. Like, there may be some low-level people. Maybe a Roger Stone may spend a few months in prison. But no, they're not going to get... I mean, none of these men are going to be held accountable for this. And Donald, there's a very strong likelihood that Donald Trump will run again in 2024 and become president. It seems interesting how the United States is instrumental in so many different things. You know, you, you say that, that the United States or the intelligence agency put Putin where it is, and I know there have been proxy governments in other countries, but the extent, the pervasiveness, the extent of the pervasiveness of the United States in their arm in the world and geopolitics is just mind-blowing. Yeah. Well, and too, like a, a lot of people are like, how do you know that the United States can pick Putin? Well, and I mean, we, we, we documented it when I think it was Gorbachev that he took over from and like Putin was an intelligence agent. Mm -hmm. Like that's what he, he was. Ex-KGB. Yeah, that's, he what, he, that's yeah. what he was. Like mm -hmm. here he is. Uh, and he's, I mean, and I think up until recently and even still recently, you could make an argument that really no matter what Putin did, we had kind of set up whether he did or did not invade Ukraine we had kind of set up for both of those options to be beneficial to American business. Yeah. So he doesn't invade Ukraine. NATO makes Ukraine a member. Um, we then have access to their resources, which I don't think we were ever going to do. I think that was a lie. Uh, I think we lied to Zelensky about that. Um, I don't think we were ever intending to put them in NATO, um, but I would be very willing to hear counter arguments to that because I'm not sure of it. But the, the, him... Putin attacking Ukraine has been great for American weapons and manufacturers. They're making money hand over fist. 
Correct. So we're giving billions of dollars. United States has given, I think, $2 billion to this point in the past little bit for the Ukraine, for the Ukrainian government. Plus, they're giving them weapons and, and javelin missiles and et cetera. So this is, I guess, something that comes back when with that money they used to purchase military equipment and mm-hmm. other stuff. And then as we give... It's a really great way to move money from the private, from the public sector to the private sector. That's what it seems like. So the U.S. government gives them, I think one time we gave them even a lump sum of like $12 billion, I think at one point. What do you think they're spending that money on? They're spending that money on American manufacturing weapons. Like one thing that the intelligence agencies have also been responsible for is cleaning public funds and giving them to private businesses. A lot of times weapons manufacturers, sometimes others, um, but... Is it wrong? Is it wrong to do that? If I was Ukrainian, I would think so. Yeah. So because I think question. Putin and the Amer- and American government is totally happy to watch Ukraine burn to the ground. They do not care about Ukraine. Don't fall for that. Yeah. I'm not disagreeing with you there. But, I mean, it seems like that they are gaming the system so that American corporations can succeed, which would put more money back supposedly put more money back into the government for spending in other areas. So it seems like it's got to be a huge part of it, right? Mm -hmm. Government regulations, government partnerships, which allow access and other things for private sales, which in turn, I mean, it's just this cycle of, Mm -hmm. of doing it. So from a, from a corporate standpoint and from a political standpoint, it seems like something that's very much furthering that of corporate America and American politics. But mm-hmm. something we often question here is, is it right on, in the moral aspect? Mm-hmm. Is yeah, this appropriate? Sure. Well, and I, I think it's evil. Is I think it's going to get, because it gets Russian people killed. It gets ignorant Russian kids killed that are sent there for war. It gets Ukrainian people killed. And I think it's, so it is, I personally, I believe that it's wrong, but then mm-hmm. it's, but we also set up this situation for them to get into this war by telling them that we were going to let them join NATO and pushing that idea towards Russia, kind of tying their hands a little bit, drawing a line in the sand and whether they crossed it or they didn't is good for us. And I think a lot of people don't realize too, that gas prices are not nearly as set by this kind of stuff as we think they are. Mm -hmm. Like, and we know that the companies are taking advantage yeah. of this to jack up the prices and make huge earnings. I yeah. mean, that's, it's yeah. not, a, it's not an administration's responsibility. Right. Like I don't blame Joe Biden for that. I mean, I blame Joe Biden for a lot, but the oil companies are making record profits. Weapons companies are making record profits. That's all that matters to yeah. our political machine is businessmen are making money. And that's. And you hear about this too. People say every time there's a Democratic administration in the White House, gas prices increase. And we recognize that it's all based on expectations and what oil mm-hmm. companies do. They're like, well, they're going to take advantage of this because mm-hmm. they know they're not going to get blamed for it. Right. And it it has led to, historically, because of the political power of that, Democratic presidents giving more concessions to the oil and gas industry Mm -hmm. than even Republican ones. Joe Biden has... a win-win. Yeah, Joe Biden has opened up, uh, has given more concessions to oil and gas companies at home and abroad than Donald Trump did in the entire four years that he was president. And like Google Line 3, or I mean, and 
he learned all this from the Obama administration, who also gave more concessions to oil and gas pipelines than his Republican predecessor. It's it's a game. And I think that it is a mistake to think that the Democratic and Republican parties are antithetical to one another. I think that's all political theater. I think it's all propaganda. It's not it's not real. Mm-hmm. It's meant to divide, and demonize, control. Because, yeah. I mean, like, there was a picture a few weeks ago of, like, Joe Biden's grandkids at Mar-a-Lago. Like, mm-hmm. they, they're all friends. Like, Rachel Maddow from MSNBC and Tucker Carlson vacation together. It's not... Like, they're all friends. They're all the wealthy elite. To quote the late, great George Carlin, it's a club and you ain't in it. <laughs> and he was he was talking about the government, and he's right. So I think the questions we have to ask ourselves when we hear this kind of information, whether we believe it to be true or not, is we have to ask ourselves, you know, is it true? Mm-hmm. Who benefits from this? Mm-hmm. And why would they want me to know this? Yes. And to have the... Exactly what you said, and to have the emotional maturity to be able to say, I do believe this. I do believe that that Joe Biden and or that Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump hate one another. I do believe that. But maybe capture that and ask yourself why mm-hmm. you believe that. And once you're willing to look into that, look into things that you believe and why you believe them, I think it can open your eyes to a lot of political theater that is being propagandized to you. And it's designed to trick normal good people. Like it's designed to obfuscate and to deceive and to get you to agree to violent things that you would never agree to. For the purpose of control, power, and greed. Mm -hmm. Of the American business elite, which is mainly white, male, and Christian. I'm excited to get into this material with y'all. I think it's going to be really good. Give us feedback on what you think. Um, if you heard anything today that strikes you as wrong or you want to talk more about it, send us your questions, send us your comments. Let us know if you don't want us to read them on the air because sometimes we will. So just put that caveat in there. and I won't use your name unless you explicitly say you want me to. And thanks for listening today. If you get a minute, we ask that you rate and review us wherever you get your podcast. It'll help us reach more people. If you like what we're doing and want to help with the research and investigation process, you can join our Patreon page. For as little as $5 a month, you can join others and get raw recordings, behind episode notes, and special releases not available to the public. You can find us at patreon.com slash expiration date. Also, you can email us at expirationdatethepodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at Expiration Date Podcast. Our theme music is Arrival of the Geese by Chad Crouch. Graphic designs by Whatever Media. This episode was written by Michelle, edited and produced by David. Subscribe to the podcast to be notified when new episodes are released. Thanks. Thanks, everybody.
John Kennedy, Martin Van Buren, and Dwight D. Eisenhower. Every president except for them has ancestors from Great Britain. Wait, what are the two? What are the? What is it? What I see is that John F. Kennedy, Martin Van Buren, and perhaps Dwight D. Eisenhower are exempt, but every other president has a link to what's it? King John. Or King something. John. Yeah, King yeah. John. I brief. I very briefly googled, but I th- I, th- I think I think it's even. I think it's. I think they're like literally cousins, and one of the I can't remember what it is, but somehow. Roosevelt, the two Roosevelt presidents were less related to the, to the, <laughs> each other than the women that they married. I think That's like funny. it's, 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 it's interesting. Hmm. It's a small world. 